0: Good morning, welcome to the show. It's Friday the 22nd of October. Dull start here in TW11, threatening to brighten up as we speak and lots to look forward to today. We'll be looking ahead to the world's most important horse race this weekend, that's the Cox Plate in Australia. J.A. McGrath with a special preview of that as we expected on yesterday's programme Gold Trip has indeed been withdrawn on veterinary advice. James Willoughby will be along to discuss the potential implications of that race and indeed to reflect on Kipco British Champions Day. What has that done to the Thoroughbred Racing Commentary Global Rankings Top 10? Quite a lot is the answer. You'll find out just how much a little bit later on in the Programme. We'll be looking ahead to the Vertam for Charity, the big group one in the UK, in the company of Roger Varian, who trains one of the leading fancies for the race, Bayside Boy. Varian also has news of his Breeders' Cup filly and mayor Turf Hopeful, Tiona. He seems very confident of a big run from her as well. He might be. And on a point of the Breeders' Cup, Charlie Appleby told me last night he'd be running six horses, hopefully, in that event, news of which to follow. One horse who won't be going. To Delmar is Mishrif. Very sadly, his season is over, John Gosden announced last night, and he also suggested he may stay in training next year as a five year old. It was, all in all, quite a challenging day for John and Thady Gosden for reasons that my guest broadcaster Rishi Passad can explain now. Rishi, what's been happening?
1: Yeah, John Gosden had a filly called Franconia who ran an enlisted race at Newbury uh, last year. Um, She tested positive for ketamine, uh, John Gosden, and one or two other substances. Uh, But primarily the ketamine was the uh, interesting aspect of it because John Gosden uh, was fined £500 by the BHA panel. um, And they added that um, he had taken precautions to avoid such an eventuality but could conceivably have done more. Uh, You and I have spoken about uh, some of the precedent uh, in cases of this type. Uh, The entry point uh, for a fine is £1,000. Jeremy Nasida in a similar case was fined £1,500. Philip Hobbs in a similar event, uh, similar case, was given zero uh, fine. Uh, John Gosden has Described the, <clears throat> the outcome of it all as obviously trying for him, but eventually what what transpired was the fact that uh, a groom at John Gosden's came forward to take the blame uh, for for what has ultimately been um, an, a, a rather embarrassing tale. Um, John Gosden described the groom uh, who was responsible for the ketamine as a vulnerable person, uh, and he came into John Gosden's employ as a man in a bit of a muddle. Um, And obviously, the panel took all these things into account, which is why John Gosden was fined the relatively low sum of £500. Um, But considering that uh, John Gosden has worked out what's happened, the groom came forward, accepted the blame for what had happened. Um, it's still surprising that John Goulson was actually fined £500 when in other cases, sort of the Philip Hobbs case, he, he was fined zero. And the panel did add later on in their conclusion that um, while John Goston, and I reiterate what I said earlier, that he used most reasonable precautions, we do not feel that he's proved that he used all Reasonable precautions, and they plan to spell that out uh, in the coming days. They say um, when some additional precautions we consider ought to have been taken. So I look forward to hearing what those are, because um, on the on the straight facts of the case, as we know and we have to accept, as what John Gosden has told us, what the panel have accepted, um, it's it's not really John Gosden's fault. And I wonder what more he could have done when it's down to one of his grooms um, being a little bit reckless with uh, taking ketamine.
0: Yeah, there's there's quite an interesting backstory to this. You mentioned the Philip Hobbs case. That was back in 2017, and a horse tested positive for cetrazine, which is you'll you'll have taken it, I'll have taken it. It's um, a hay fever medication, or antihistamine yeah. medication. Yeah, And you know, there was none in the yard. It wouldn't be given for equine consumption. It was probably environmental com- contamination. But in that case, Philip Hobbs couldn't actually conclusively prove where it had come from. But the um, disciplinary panel went against the BHA's then existing policy of strict liability. They torpedoed that effectively and said, Mm -hmm. no fault. And then that had an impact on the controversial Huey Morrison case subsequently. And so then the rules got changed. And eventually in 2020, the rules were put on on the statute. And then we had this issue of whether you could establish the precise source. And if you could, and you'd taken all reasonable measures to avoid contamination, then yeah, you know, that liability was significantly significantly lessened so mm. there, there is a bit of history here but it doesn't strike me richie that that the sport is entirely comfortable with a with a consistent position on this
1: no uh the thing that i find hard to weigh up nick is the fact that obviously there is a, a statutory law about this um However, the penalty is clearly open to discretion, as we've seen by the fact that John Colston's got 500 pounds. How did you come to that decision that that was the amount uh, that should be uh, prescribed as a, as a punishment in this particular case? And discretion allows variation of thought. And that's, that's the difficulty in trying to work this out. As said, the, the BHA are going to... Um, spell out the reasons at some point, um, what the additional precautions that John Gosson could have taken, perhaps within that context, we'll be able to work out why he was eventually fined 500 pounds. But it's, well, I, it's a hard one to weigh up from what we've read so far.
0: I suppose the ultimate precaution is not hiring someone who's a ketamine user. But then how are you supposed to know that the that the employee is a ketamine user unless you are monitoring their every move? And I suppose then that, that enters all sorts of, um, mm. brings up all sorts of issues about addiction in, in horse racing and, and duty of care and, and so oh, forth. Exactly. Issue, you're, issues, you're, that issues that John himself has touched on in the aftermath of this case.
1: Well, you, you're then moving into a whole different area, as you rightly point out, you know, involving the, the taking of drugs by staff, the well-being aspect of it. When John Gosden described the member of staff as being a vulnerable person and someone in a bit of a muddle, it's it's a very, very dangerous, uh, dangerous territory to be involved in. Um, you know, in addition to all of this, John Gosden has to deal with the fact that um, you know, even on something like the the Today program on, on Radio Four, he's uh, he he wasn't very happy, according to his quotes, um, about the fact that um, his name has come up uh, as having given Ketterman to a racehorse, and I think the, the Radio Four report suggested that the champion trainer could be looking at a, a lengthy ban, etc. And 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 I can understand his his uh, his annoyance and frustration at uh, at that of being associated with something like that for a man of of his reputation the fact that he's you know such a big name in the sport and a champion trainer and 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 someone who's been so successful and positive for the sport
0: yeah it wasn't a great day at, at clare haven yesterday because it, it came out in the evening um according to steve anderson from the daily racing form who, who got this story first that Mishrif would not run in the Breeders' Cup, which is a, a big blow to the European challenge. And it has particular resonance as well. Not only as the one horse that could have run in the Breeders' Cup Classic from Europe, mm. but also because of Gosden's own history and uh, and success at Del Mar when he was training in California.
1: Yeah, I'm disappointed as a racing fan, first and foremost, that Mishrif doesn't go to the Breeders' Cup. He had options. Yes, the Breeders' Cup Classic. Was one, and I'd love to have seen him take that race. And uh, considering the versatility that he's shown so far in his career, um, I was looking forward to seeing him at the Breeders' Cup, but sadly that is not the case. I mean, you you probably know a little bit more about the the Goldstone Delmar relationship, but you know, what's his? What do you think his view is on on Delmar at the moment?
0: Well, I, I think his view on Delmar at the moment is probably the same as his view on Delmar when he trained there, which is it's a a, a great place, but it's it's he I think believes that it's a bit of a specialist's track. Uh, and that you need a certain type of horse to excel there, which is a perfectly reasonable contention, given the shortness of the stretch. And if you run on the turf, it's a 3 bend race. Uh, and again, you need a a certain type of horse. He probably doesn't think Mishra is perfectly suited. But from what he's saying, from what they're saying, I think they probably would have gone if the horse was 100% and the horse is probably not absolutely 100% after, after Ascot, where notwithstanding mm. the ground, Rishi, I thought he just never really looked happy.
1: No, I think that might have been it. Uh, but the reports afterwards, the immediate report after the race, was that it seemed as if it was all systems to go. The ho- horse's first signs after the race were that he was fine. I do agree that he never looked happy. There was a point in the race where I thought he might be getting close to landing a blow, but he never really picked up. Um, I, I actually thought the way the race was run was probably against him in addition to the ground. But, you know, I don't know what, what has gone on physically with him. And maybe there is an issue that um, it's... It might be small and it's best to to pull up stumps for now. But uh, as I said, as a racing fan, very disappointed that a horse of his class and his versatility isn't in the mix for for the Breeders' Cup at Del Mar. Because clearly uh, Mishriff at his best uh, would have been a big player wherever he turned up.
0: Yeah, my heart sank, as you can imagine, last night when I uh, when I saw that news. But there you go. If the horse isn't 100%, he's not 100%. And we have to wait for next year. That, I suppose, is the uh, silver lining to that cloud, is that he is going to remain in training next year mm. to add to his current £11.5 million prize money <laughs> haul. Um, but possibly suggests that the studs aren't beating down the door to stand him just yet for whatever reason. Mm. Now, I spoke to Charlie Appleby last night, Rishi, and he gave me the update on his full team for the Breeders' Cup, which would be two in the mile, two in the turf, two in the juvenile turf. So Space Blues will be favorite for the mile, accompanied by Guinea's runner-up, Master of the Sea, Buick on Space Blues, probably James Doyle on Master of the Seas. And then he would run two in the in the juvenile modern games, juvenile turf modern games with Buick. And Albar, he'll leave Frankie de Tori on him on the presumption that James Doyle will ride Zubawi Legend for Hugo mm. Palmer in that race. And then in the turf, the Canadian International uh, winner Walton Street, uh, most likely ridden by james doyle would join your beer most likely ridden by william buick that's what he passed on to me uh, last night so we were worried there might only be three runners from the appleby yard after the day before yesterday but in fact there are six <laughs> And likely to join the Appleby Sextet in Del Mar is Tiona, trained by Roger Varian. He was a Group 1 winning trainer last weekend with the Shard at Ascot. He could be a Group 1 winning trainer this weekend too with Bayside Boy in the Vertem for Charity. the horse he finished third in the Dewhurst. I've been speaking to the trainer about all these horses and I started off with Bayside Boy and put it to him, he must be a pretty tough cookie to have come out of the Dewhurst and be running again so soon in a Group 1.
2: Seems in great form, Nick. Um, really came out of a Dewhurst well, and you know that was only two weeks ago. So we haven't done uh, too much of him in between, but he's, you know, he looks great for the time of the year, and um, he, he seems to be holding his form at home anyway.
0: Uh, and was it always a, a plan to take in both races, or has he surprised you with how well he's done since the Dewhurst?
2: Well, we spoke about his options after the Dewhurst, which was. Uh, you know, the French race on the same day, the race and post-trophy, or possibly taking him to the States for the juvenile turf. And, you know, we were going to let his well-being uh, dictate to us, really. And, you know, we've been so pleased with him since the Jewhurst. Um, you know, we've, we've opted to go to Doncaster, whether that's the right decision or not. We'll see how we go on Saturday. But we couldn't be more pleased, you know, with his condition. And I think he brings a, a high level of form into the race.
0: His half brother Forest Ranger acted very well with with cutting the ground, and there was a little ease when he he won the champagne. It'll be much softer tomorrow. Uh, is that in any way a concern?
2: I think it's a question mark. I wouldn't call it a concern, but he'd have to prove he goes on it uh, uh, as soft as it's going to be tomorrow. Um, yeah, you know, we've seen you know Forest Ranger's form. We've seen some new bay. Uh, Progeny recently winning uh, on soft ground, uh, which can be a pointer, he showed it certainly wasn't an inconvenience on the good to soft at the, at the ledger meeting when he won that champagne. I think that his running style in every race, although he's not yet gone beyond seven furlongs, I think every time he's run, he's, he appears to be doing his best work late on to suggest that you know he could e- could even improve when he, when he steps up to the mile. So we're very much looking forward to seeing him run over the mile. The ground, yes, is a is a question mark and puts maybe more an emphasis on stamina than speed. But I think if he handles conditions, then he brings you know a very high level of form into the race. You
0: you could yet be heading to the Breeders' Cup with with Tione, your previous May winner. The ground was too soft for her in the arc. um How's she doing?
2: She's in great form, Nick. Yeah, we're we're delighted with her and uh, very much uh, it's a plan to go to the Breeders' Cup with her.
0: Uh, you've knocked on the door a few times at, at Breeders' Cups. That must be an itch you're badly wanting to scratch now.
2: Very much so. You know, I think we've had seconds and thirds. Uh, we haven't had a winner out there yet, but um, I think if we keep taking the right horses, then you know, at some point uh, the door will open. And I think Tiona is, uh, you know, as, as good an animal as we'll we'll take to the Breeders' Cup, or, or as we have taken before. I think she'll be very deserving of place either in the Phillies and mares or the turf itself we haven't decided which way we're going to go yet but she's in great form and um you know she's likely raised she's peaking at the right time of the year you know i think she'd go out there and run very well
0: and wonderful training performance to get a sharder back to win a group one at, at ascot last week in the fillies and mares how much satisfaction did that give you
2: yeah i mean enormous uh, really nick it was um you know, it's one of those days, you know, when you can have a winner on Champions Day. It's it's one of the highlights of the year. I think a filly like Shada is another filly that we've had a lot of faith in for a long time, and you know she had that blip at York in the Yorkshire Oaks, but prior to that, you know that Ribblesdale run, you know if you look back at that now, and you know the first two are both Group One winners. That was a huge run, and you know we said after the Ribblesdale, was, you know her race was was Ascot in October, and. You know, we said it straight after York. Whatever went wrong at York, you know, we said, you know, let's let's take it, you know, to Ascot. That's always been a long-term plan. And when you have a long-term plan and it comes off, it's it's even more satisfying. You know, we know often it doesn't, but when it does, it's uh, it's rewarding for everyone involved. A lot of hard work goes into it. And to see that performance on Champions Day was um, was a thrill for us all. You know,
0: is there anything much for her left this year, or is she just going to come back next? <laughs>
2: Well, I think all those things have to be decided. I think there's nothing really for her now this year. So, you know, a decision will be made at some point, whether she's uh, in training as a four-year-old or not. I don't think we've reached that decision yet. And, um, you know, we're just digesting uh, last weekend, really. She's perfectly fine after her race. She looks very well. She's out uh, having a canter every morning this week. And, um, you know, hopefully she might come back. She's only raced her five times. She's a Big scopey filly, and, and you'd think she'd she'd have more to offer,
0: but um, we'll have to see. Uh, training Roger Verian there, Rishi, and, and quite understandably, he's got high hopes of Tiona and and Bayside Boy tomorrow.
1: Yeah, it'd be uh, an extraordinary run of races for Bayside Boy to win the Champagne, run in the Dewhurst, and head to the Vert Maturity. maturity. Uh, he's clearly very tough, very talented, and he was staying on nicely at the end of the uh, the Dewhurst. He's a he's a very classy horse. Uh, clearly, I like Bayside Boy a lot. I'm not sure I can see him winning. I think if Luxembourg uh, is in any way, I think even the 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 turn of foot and the quality that he showed on his previous win might be good enough to to win. I, but I think there's more to come. He looked. You you tell me your thoughts, Lucky. But I thought he looked disorganized still uh, when he won at the Kara, the um, the the Beresford. He he just still looked a little bit awkward. And then despite that he quickened up really impressively. And yes, it obviously uh, not that strong a field and you have much tougher opposition uh, on Saturday at Doncaster. But I just wondered when this horse does get himself organized, what he might be capable of, because I think that he's doing it now just on raw talent.
0: Yeah, that uh, manger Sire line is so evident, isn't it, in, in horses? Mm. You can spot it a mile away, that you know, raw, explosive talent and a burst of pace, but a, a certain kind of, quirkiness and sometimes yeah. a slight ungainliness in the way horses carry themselves relative to to some others but um, he, he's very good and if channeled in the right direction I'm sure he's he's going to be he's going to be winning loads of of good races it's, that's the if they can go one or two mm-hmm. ways i think rishi you'll be at cheltenham today it'll be a great occasion first big crowd at cheltenham since that infamous festival of 2020 that was so talked about in the weeks and months after it because it was at the beginning of covid Today, there may be a slightly tense atmosphere on account of the stories uh, from the weighing room that have come out over the last week. We heard about Brani Frost and Robbie Dunn all over the Sunday Times last week. It's been confirmed that there is now a second case, a safeguarding issue, a complaint from another female jockey about another male jockey that the BHA is looking into. And then Greg Wood in The Guardian yesterday, a lengthy piece about the troubles that a jockey suffered allegedly at the hands of a valet 25-30 years ago in the weighing room. All these stories in the same week. I mean how do you view the way this is developing?
1: It's a slight worry you know, from my perspective and yes it'd be interesting to see what the the weighing room atmosphere is like uh, today at Cheltenham because uh, I haven't been on course since this uh, these stories have, have broken. Um, so it'd be, it'd be nice to gauge just how they're reacting to it because You've mentioned the three bit. Obviously, the the Brianie, Frost, Robbie Dunn story that we all know about. The follow up story about the second jockey, uh, second female jockey, uh, who's complained about the behaviour of a male jockey, and the the Greg Wood piece in, in the Guardian that highlights that jockey from from days gone by. The slight concern for me is that maybe this is the the floodgates about to open, and we would be getting more stories, more individual stories coming forward that you know the weighing room in the past. 10, 20 years, hasn't been all that we would like it to be. But then on the other hand, you do get people defending the weighing room and it's understandable, whether it's a Tom Scudamore or David Bass. It is understandable because I can imagine that the weighing room is for a lot of people a very, very uh, happy place, a place where people feel comfortable. Um, but it doesn't mean that there aren't incidents where some people do feel uncomfortable. And I guess it's accepting that other people may have a different perspective than your own when you're in the same environment and enjoying yourself, that other people might be in the same environment and not enjoying themselves. And I think it's just worth being a little bit open in how we perceive what's going on and not saying, well, because the majority is saying it's all great, and it probably is, for the majority, a happy place and a good place. But if there's one, two, three people if there are three people who are not enjoying the experience, then we ought to be trying to help those people. We ought to be trying to understand what it is um, that they have concerns about. Um, I think it's just, it's just important to have perspective and not say, well, it's a good place for me.
0: Well, they also have to be treated individually and sensitively according to their particular circumstances. And I think that's, probably the concern, isn't it, that once everything just gets thrown into a melting pot and everything yeah. becomes conflated, you then lose sight of what the actual serious issues are, if there are serious issues within the individual cases
1: exactly it's it's very important to understand that each in and that that's why i was saying asking understanding other people's perspective and why they might struggle with a certain situation because it is their individual situation they're the only ones who can see it from their position so it's worth taking the time to understand it just in case it's replicated in any particular area or any with any other particular people that you you know you've had that experience and you know how to deal with it
0: it is friday which means that it is time to read down the thoroughbred racing commentary top 10 global horses and at 10 for great britain down one is hurricane lane placed in the arc we'll see him next year down two at nine is jackie's warrior what more has this brilliant sprinter got to do well he'll go and win the breeders cup sprint nick's go is down three at eight breeders cup classic contender Down one at seven is Tarnawa. Is she quite as good as she was last year? The Breeders' Cup turf might tell us, and she could go higher up the list. For Australia, the Everest winner at six, Nature Strip is up six, the runner-up in that race, Mars Crusaders, up 9-43 to And the third, Eduardo, is up 3-16, to 16, just one place behind Zaki, more of whom in a minute. At five is Mishrif, down one, and that's it for him for the season, very sadly, as you heard at the beginning of the program. For the USA, at four, down one, essential quality, still the clubhouse leader going into the Breeders' Cup Classic. For Great Britain, at three, he retires at three. Palace Pier, he'd been at the top for a long time this year, he's down one at three, and his. Queen Elizabeth II State's conqueror from Champions Day. Baid is up 11 at 2, but he just fails to knock St. Mark's Basilica off the top spot. St. Mark's Basilica is now retired to stud, and that, James Willoughby, is because of a certain Sealy Way.
3: Yes, Nick, what a tremendous week of uh, international racing, some fantastic racing in the Brit- British Champions Day at Ascot, of course, and also uh, down under. Uh, with Incentivise in particular, the, the fast-improving Australian Stair winning the Caulfield Cup in tremendous style right round the outside and uh, really teeing himself up for, um, well, a globally significant performance, maybe, in the Melbourne Cup. So
0: Sealyway winning the British Champion Stakes has had a significant impact not only on his position, up to 33 from 385, one of the week's biggest climbers, but also on the very top of this table.
3: That's right. It's more significant for what it actually implies about other horses in this list. Most notably, of course, I think St. Mark's uh, Basilica. Now, St. Mark's Basilica is a horse that we've seen get form boost after form boost. And I've said many times on this podcast that that's what I look for as an international assessor of horses. I call it the Frankel effect. It's this idea that, like horses, when they're not around, the horses they beat represent them in other races and give their form a boost. And that's what we've seen. Siliway, of course, uh, boosting St. Mark's Basilica. Um, and also, of course, from his fifth in the arc, giving the arc a bit of an up- uplift as well. So his winning the champion stake significant for the previous Jockey Club form and the arc form. Uh, if Siliway had not won the British champion
0: stakes, would Baid have gone to the top of the list and not been just short
3: at two? Uh, very good question. No, you wouldn't. It would have been very close, though. It would have been much closer than it is. And uh, it would potentially, of course, have meant that, that if the horses that St. Mark's Basilica and Bayeid had beaten have subsequently come out and done different things towards the end of the season, it could have resulted in a change to those two horses' rankings as their form kind of worked out. And this is the thing that computers do exceptionally well. I keep talking about this on the pod, which is computers excel over humans because of a process called back handicapping which humans don't do very well. And that handicapping is revising tens of millions of previous ratings and form relationships in the light of what's just happened. And that is very significant. People think that a race is cast in stone once it's occurred. But we really need to see how those horses fit into the hierarchy themselves later on, and we gain more information on them. And you've made the point a few times that perhaps some of the corrections that the TRC Global Rankings have made have been the result of those horses being too highly rated in the first place. Hurricane Lane is a good example, and of course from the Champion Stakes we should mention Adayar, who really now is is, is down to twenty four mm-hmm. from number ten after taking two pastings, one in the Arc and now in the Champion Stakes. Look at his career in the round, Nick, and you're left with a bit of a conundrum. He got beaten and looked at nothing special in the Lingfield Derby Trial. He looked a bit slow in the Sandown classic trial, and then of course the Derby and the King George, in which he looked like a, a top-notch horse. And he leaves us with a bit of a conundrum. And an even bigger one, Nick posed by Snowfall, who surrendered tamely in the British Champions Philly in there there. And she's now down to number 38 overall. And a very difficult horse to know properly because her two-year-old form was really kind of average by group race standards, not average by all. Horses standard, and then we saw her come out and improve at York. Looked like an absolute million dollars in the three Oaks that she won, but this was a, a poor effort really. And um, now back to back moderate performances from her. So Snowfall and Adaya are similar types, very hard horses to assess, and that's why you have to look at the the, the the record of a horse in the round. You can't just define a horse by its best performance, as some handicappers seem intent on doing.
0: Yeah, I, I get I get the sort of image of the the TRC computer down in its its Hampshire base, um, <laughs> getting to, <laughs> going through. It lives, through in, it lives in the
3: cloud. Yeah, going as I do, all, of course, going, in a
0: different going, way. Through, going through all these yeah. horses, in Hurricane Lane. Yes, down one. Jackie's worried. Down two. Yeah. At ar, I'm just going for a fag in the garden quickly. <laughs>
3: yeah, that's right. Have a think yeah, about that. Great. Yeah. New circuit board required. Yeah. Uh, this, uh, this season has seen. Quite a lot of performances like that. It was a season that, as it went on, as, as it reached its midpoint, it looked to have all sorts of possibilities, and some of those possibilities have been realised. But we've seen surprise performances in others races, like the Champion Stakes and the Arc, that have caused us to think: Well, are these horses Sealyway and Torquata really, you know, really as good as they looked, or is it that the other horses they beat are not quite as as top notch as we perhaps previously thought? And from a computing perspective. It's that latter way of looking at things that predominates because the computer thinks that everything is an estimation. You get some handicappers who think that a one, two, four is kind of set in stone and they can definitely tell that a horse is three pounds better than last year uh, from their figures. Computers don't really act that way. They act as if everything is an estimation. They're constantly revising and constantly saying, We're trying to find the, the sweet spot for a horse based on the round, based on all its performances. But some horses, if you say, Are really difficult to assess like that. A horse
0: that isn't difficult to assess particularly is is Nature Strip, who won the Everest. And the TRC global rankings have taken a pretty positive view of the race as a whole. And Australian horses are on the march in this list.
3: Yeah, that's fair to say. I think the, the vibrancy, the positivity, the enthusiasm that's long been a feature of Australian racing is now being attended by perhaps a rising quality, in my opinion, as more investment has poured into the sport. They've bought horses more frequently from the better bloodlines up here as well. they been developing some very obviously, I've had great bloodlines down there for, for decades as well. And it's all producing, I think, an, an overall rise in some of the quality of the performances we're seeing on a daily basis. Incentivize. I've mentioned him, of course. And Strip. I mean, there are many in this list that you, you think are a lot better than him. He tends to cling on under pressure. And you often think to yourself, well, the second could have won if he's run had started sooner or whatever. But he's now won seven races, which the TRC system regards as being group one quality. And the latest, of course, being that thrilling win last weekend in the Everest at Randwick. And he held on in a desperate finish there from Mask Crusader, who has gone from 62 to 43. And an old rival of his, Eduardo, who's now up to 16. So we're seeing the rankings now are really featuring a a goodly number of these fast-rising Australian horses.
0: And James, we're about to hear from Jim McGrath about the Cox Plate. We spoke about it yesterday with the withdrawal of gold trip. It's a smallish field, but is it going to have an impact on these rankings come next week?
3: Oh, big time. This is about as exciting a race as you could possibly muster. For the older brigade, we've got number 15, Zaki, number 23, Very Elegant, who's a tremendous horse. Probably, who's capable of some serious upsets, Moanga, of course, Annabelle Nisham's horse, uh, as well as Zaki, so she has a strong hand. But what's really interesting about the, the plate this year is that Animo and Captivan, Animo, the three year old, is as high as 22 in the world. Some tremendous performances from him, and intriguingly, another element provided by the Irish trained US Grade 1 winner, State of Rest who's on the edge the, of the top 300 in the world. So it's a tremendous race, full of, in, of intrigue, and we'll definitely see it have major implications when we talk next week.
0: James, thank you very much. As promised now, we head to Australia in association with HBA Media, who are the leading international agency distributing the sport of horse racing globally, the rights holders to the Breeders' Cup, the Saudi Cup, the Melbourne Cup, Royal Ascot, and so much more. And it gives me great pleasure to welcome once again to the show with his thoughts on the Cox Plate, Jim McGrath.
4: Nick, headlines often catch you off guard, but this time we were well prepared for the inevitable. Gold Trip has been withdrawn from the Cox Plate. On form, this French import was perfect for the job. In the frame, in four Group 1s in his 10 starts, including the arc, but he failed to pass the customary pre-feature race check and it wasn't just a one-vet examination. Gold Trip failed six vets who looked at him over the 48 hours prior to his withdrawal. I heard David Eustace on this podcast yesterday. The disappointment in his voice was palpable. Yes, you have to feel for the Gold Tripper Connections, who paid big money for a well-performed European horse. He would be top end of the market that commands well in excess of £1.2 million for the right horse landed in Melbourne. But Racing Victoria has acted responsibly, in my opinion. Following the mounting death toll in big races, they were compelled to take action, It's not unlike the position Aintree found themselves in with the Grand National a decade ago. Public reaction has been so strongly negative, it would have been totally irresponsible not to take some action. Everyone listening to this podcast knows that over time there will still be equine fatalities. It's impossible to eliminate all risk. Only last week, the Eustace Kieran Ma team lost their last year's Cox Plate winner, Sir A, in a no-pressure track gallop at the Valley. Who could legislate against that happening? But it's the right step to minimise the risk. The only thing that doesn't wash with me, and I'm talking across the board here, uh, punters through to officials, is the constant demand for what is termed locally good three ground. It's too quick. And that's for all horses. To really progress, the culture has to change. All that aside, this renewal of the Cox Plate, which is in its 100th year, is a cracker and loses nothing with the smaller field. The Kiwi visitor, callsign Melv, passed the vet, by the way, so there are nine runners. It will be intriguing and tactical. And I believe this will be a Cox Plate for the younger generations, both human and equine. Think James Cummings and three-year-old Animo, Annabel Nisham who's got Zaki and Moanga, and Joseph O'Brien who was represented by Saratoga Derby winner State of Rest. James Cummings has been Godolphin's head trainer in Australia for four years now. It was a major triumph for James in the stable when Animo won the Caulfield Guineas two weeks ago. Anna Mo made a huge impression at Caulfield, he's a physically imposing son of Street Crystallian Street Boss and he used that powerful physique to come from seven lengths behind the leaders at the half mile to win decisively. There was a time when three year olds running in a Cox Plate was fashionable, but there have been only three successful this century. There are more options these days, horses staying in their age group is the norm. Annabelle Neesham is also a rising star trainer. She's done a great job winning five from eight with Zaki since he arrived in Australia after being sold out of Sir Michael Stout's stable. He was beaten last start, but a lack of pace was a genuine excuse. Annabelle also saddles Mwanga, a Group 1 winner who was second to incentivise in the Maccabi Diva. And Joseph O'Brien, who seeks to emulate his famous dad, who won the Cox Plate a few years back with Adelaide. Joseph had earmarked the Cox Plate for state of rest just after his win at Saratoga. All reports are good. The three-year-old, four to Aussie time, has settled in well. My tip is Animo. He's got the makings of a budding star. And he has a huge weight pull here. He's getting 21 pounds from Zaki, which is very significant. Captivon, the other three-year-old with a featherweight of 7 stone 11, must also have a chance. He was runner-up in the guineas to Animo last start. Chris Waller sends the headstrong mare very elegant, a multiple group one winner with a strong chance on her very best form. As I said, it's a cracker in prospect. Let's hope Craig Williams can do a vow and declare on Animo and get him over from a wide draw, 9 of 9. If he does, I believe we will be toasting a new star, one who in time could be a worthy rival to incentivise.
0: Well, thanks to Jim and James and all my guests this week. Rishi is still with me, and Rishi has a tip for you for the
4: weekend.
1: It is in the 3.15 today at uh, Doncaster. I like Postilio. Of Roger Barron we know that stable are, are ticking along nicely and this horse ran a couple of good races earlier in the year one on the all weather and then he was second at uh, Chester in the, the Chester plate. Um, he hasn't been seen since Royal Ascot and I think that there's definitely more to come. He's he's beautifully bred and um, he's got favourite moon of, of William Haggis' to beat but I think he might do that.
0: All right, Rishi, thanks so much. Thank you very much for listening. Don't forget, Charlotte will be back at nine o'clock this evening with the Saturday edition building up to all the racing tomorrow and some of the best of the interviews from this week's podcast. And I will be back with you on Monday. That was Friday, the 22nd of October. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Nick Luck Daily, brought to you in association with Fitzdares,